five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. You ready to start? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, Boss de Groot. Yes. Boss the Great for uh, the Americans listening. Not the big, but the great in this uh, particular situation. I think so. <laughs> I'm not sure. You're not allowed to say it, but I can say it. Hmm. Yeah, so we met, what, almost five years ago. Yes, five. And you were about to go to South Korea to become an international milk uh, endorser slash celebrity. At that moment, yeah, it was. <laughs> it was a really, uh, really strange, uh, strange uh, act in a way. Also, the way how they invited me, it was really, yeah, ridiculous almost. Why? How did they invite you? I get a Facebook Messenger message from a really nice looking... Uh, Make sure you look at the... Australian, uh, <laughs> or not, uh, not Australian, but South Korean uh, woman. But at that moment, sometimes you have that, that you get a lot of messengers from le- really nice women who want to do any- everything with you. So that was, uh, so I f- first thought that that she was one of them as well. So I just ignore it. And after a week, she just uh, contacted me again. I didn't hear anything from you. And I'm from that and that company. And I have a really big client who wants to do uh, a milk uh, uh, commercial with you. Uh, and, and I just Googled the company, and I'm not sure what the name of the company was, but it was one of the biggest uh, marketing companies in the world that I think was also doing Coca-Cola. So wow. I thought, okay, this is serious business. Uh, but what was really strange, we had some uh, chats uh, on phone or on LinkedIn or something. I don't know how we did it at that time. And uh, she said, this is the client. Uh, we are the company, the marketing company, but there is also uh, a company for the um, that hire the people uh, like uh, actors. So I have to do the negotiation with them. Mm. Uh, and I thought, okay, this is really serious. And how do you, how do you, how do you talk to them? And uh, what what do you, uh, what ha- do I have to ask? How much? T- I have to earn because this is not something like uh, a one hour and writing your uh, your invoice. So that was really interesting. And after six weeks of negotiation, uh, I went off uh, to uh, to South Korea, and uh, and we had a really terrific week. Me and my uh, my commercial partner at that moment, Mariska, and we worked one and a half day, and the rest we are were, were free, and we were just went on to Korea with the company, who uh, yeah, who shows showed us everything and paid for everything. So uh, it was uh, it was a really nice uh, holiday. That uh, yeah, it was a nice commercial too. It was it was really nice commercial, yeah. And but they put you up on billboards and stuff, right? In Seoul, yeah, it was really nice because uh, it was also a bit strange. We had some friends who just moved to Seoul, and uh, when the commercial went uh, online to uh, to uh, to start the new product because it was also a new product, uh, he just sent me some pictures uh, of me. Uh, yeah, I was the, but when I was screening on really big billboards in Seoul, 
and it's yeah it's really strange but it's also strange because i was not there so oh, yeah. it's something okay i'm it, it was there was like billboards about uh, eight by six meters or something so it was really big just on the the, the big squares of soul uh so yeah at that moment you think okay maybe this can be really big as that they they recognize you but you're not there so it's so uh you're like the big hollywood celebrities that then go live in the south of france i, I don't <laughs> i don't i don't like that but it's it's it would be great to just uh to experience it just once so that's just walking uh, on the street and get recognized yeah that would be great <laughs> so uh yeah but I've been back in South Korea with the international uh, trade mission for the, the government, for the Dutch government. And it was just a small year later. And I just was, I was recognized just one time. So in that way, it was, I'm probably not that big celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for the people who don't know, you were the world's first milk sommelier. That's what they say. <laughs> I'm I'm still not really convinced. I, there's something something like the the uh, the world records book or something. How do you call the it? Guinness Book. The of Guinness world Book of records. records. But there's also another one, sort of. Uh, and I'm in that book that I'm the first. Mm. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't I don't care in a you way. You dispute your own record. I don't <laughs> care. I don't care. It's nice. Uh, and it's always nice for media or or uh, or clients to say that I'm the first. So or the only one. So what is a, because most people know, have heard of a wine sommelier. Yeah. But so what is a sommelier in general? A sommelier in general is that a person that really knows a drink really well and taste and also uh, compare it or, or, or combine it with food. So it's the, the, the pairing of the food and the drinks. Uh, and as milk sommelier, that's probably not really the good word for me. I don't do that. So I'm not a sommelier in the correct sense of the word. And what's also important is that the sommelier always works in a restaurant. Mm. So I, d uh, I had a restaurant in the past, but uh, I don't work there anymore. Um, so um, so the, the word milk sommelier was given to me by a friend of mine. She, was an, she is an artist, Sitske Kloster. And... Um, she invited me a few years ago. Uh, she heard of me that I, I no, it's, I have to go back. <laughs> I have to go. I've because I think I have to start the story of being a, of becoming a milk sommelier from the beginning, and the beginning I think was when I was eight years old. Okay. So that's a long time ago because I'm now 44. <laughs> um, I was going to a, a, a farm every year. Uh, in Wezepe, that's in the east of the Netherlands, by Boer Bertus, farmer Bertus. Um, and uh, that was the first time that I drink raw milk that I can, I, I know. Um, and when I drink it for the first time, I was really overwhelmed by the, the flavor. Already at that time, I thought, wow, this is delicious doesn't every dutch kid do that when they have their first milk it's like the heavens open up and they uh, see angels <laughs> <laughs> i think it's really dutch to drink to consume a lot of milk uh, but uh, i'm not sure if every kid has that <laughs> but uh, i was really surprised by the the the, the flavor and the, the richness of it and i thought wow this is if i go to the supermarket all the i like the milk there as well but uh, it was it was not that rich as flavor than that than I drink the raw milk. Uh, 
But the really interesting thing for me was that when I go the second day to the farm and I drink the milk again, the raw milk, and the flavor was already different than the first day. So, and then I thought, wow, milk has different flavors and changes all the time. So that was when I was eight years old. Um, and many years later, I think something like uh, the be- when I was the beginning of twenties, I worked on a farm, not not a dairy farm, uh, and I drink a lot of milk. I really like milk, so I, dr- I just bought a lot of milk, especially raw milk from goats at that time. And uh, so I, at that time, I just started to drink something like four liters. In America, I think it's a one gallon, isn't it? Yeah. Four liters. So a gallon a day, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> uh, because I really liked it. Um, uh, and I did it for many years. Uh, and I um, was also at the start of a think tank, Eight Bar Rotterdam, Edible Rotterdam. That was a think tank about uh, uh, urban farming here in, the Rotter- in, the, in Rotterdam. Uh, and when we had meetings, sometimes I brought milk to the meetings and I'd say, say, oh, you have to taste it because this one is different than the other one from the last uh, last week or the last meeting. And uh, one of the people uh, at that group was Rien Bongers. He's a, a company owner of a company that do uh, debates uh, on social issues and they he get a really big assignment from our biggest corporation in Netherlands, Friesland Campina to start an online platform to discuss and tell stories about the dairy industry. And uh, when he get that assignment, he just asked me, Bas, you're really a milk lover. You <laughs> have to write something on my platform. Um, so I wrote an article. I re- had to really think about it. What, what can I write? Because I can write that I love milk, but I think that's not really a story. Uh, but I was also trained as a farmer and I was and I knew that milk changes all the time. So I just wrote a story that, in my opinion, it's a, is that milk can be terroir. And terroir is just a word that you n- probably know from the wine industry. So I don't know it. No, you no, don't no, no, know. No. That's, it's really French, that terroir. And it's, um, it's that if you... If you if you have terroir, that there's the some sort of locality that you can really experience in your product, and in, in wine is really the region and the soil mm. and that sort of thing. So it's also referred terroir is like terre, terroir is it's the it's the the soil. So when you hear those people making the jokes like, oh, you can really taste the earthiness from the yes. region. Yeah, okay. and in wine, it's it is really like that. But right. I, sure, in my course. opinion. Also, as a as a farmer, I, I grow crops. Uh, if you grow crops, and I grow crops on different farms in different type of soil, then you know that uh, crops act differently if you have a different type of soil, and it tastes also sometimes taste a bit di- bit different. So, in my opinion, if you produce everything what you produce in real connection with the soil, can be terroir, and in that way, I think milk can be terroir as well because. In uh, in my opinion, a good setup of, of farming or cattle or dairy farming is that the, the the dairy the cows go outside on the meadow and graze their feet or food on the land from the soil. Um, so 
I just wrote the article and say, okay, everything what you can, what you produce in connection to the soil, also milk, can be terroir. Uh, so I just said at that moment to farmers, I think your milk can be terroir, and you can you can send it to me to taste it, and I want to sell it for you because at that moment I had a farm in Rotterdam and also a store uh, out your stad. Uh, we will talk probably later about that. Uh, so uh, that was the, the article that I uh, wrote. Uh, b- because of the platform, there were more people coming to Rien to write articles. And one of them was Sitske Klooster, the, the person I already referred to. Uh, she's an artist. And she had the same... In, yeah, she was also intrigued by milk and the differences. So uh, she wrote my article and she wanted to um, do some sort of tasting session. And she invited me and others to that session. Mm. And uh, she asked me, how do you taste? And I'd never thought about uh, how do you taste things, because in in a way I'm just a normal farmer and I like things or I don't like things. Uh, Is that different in a literal translation in Dutch? How do you taste? Because in English that could also come across as a bit of a... uh, different type of question that she could be asking. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You have to explain. (laughs) Uh, So it was was about flavor. (laughs) (laughs) What is your your tasting uh, routine or (laughs) (laughs) process? (laughs) Okay. Now I get it, but the same as like, how do you paint? How do you taste? Because you're an expert, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Some people think that I'm an expert. I'm still not really convinced (laughs) about it. (laughs) We'll go back to that later. (laughs) Uh, But but she asked me to, how do you do that? So um, at that moment, I had a farm, including a restaurant. And we had uh, had some other restaurant colleagues. And one of them, she was uh, a trained uh, wine sommelier. So I asked her, mouse, she called. It's the translation is mouse. <laughs> uh, to okay, mouse, how do you how do you taste and what how do you do that? The flavor and the testing and the, and and uh, so she learned me how they do it with wine. Uh, so I told Sitka, uh, okay, probably we have to do it like this. And she uh, made an, uh, a new project called the, the Milk Ways, Milky Ways, uh, and she said, uh, I want to that you inf- you join. And you are my milk sommelier. Mm. So that then I was. So it's not something that I think or, or I just thought of. So it's uh, you didn't use it as like your Twitter handle back in the day. And then no, <laughs> no, yeah, but that because we had that project, we just decided to use the word to get more information how you can influence or create the te- the flavor in the milk. So at that moment, we just start to 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 using the the word milk sommelier. They put she put it on my head mm. and uh and uh so we used the word milk sommelier and it was 2015 and at that moment in april the first of april the milk quota uh, went off the milk what do you, what do you mean uh, uh, in europe we had a uh, we had a, we had rules that you can produce amount of milk or kilograms of milk so like a cap like a limit to how a much limit milk. yeah okay. yeah and uh, they decided to to stop that because there were more there was more uh, there was more question on the international market about good milk. So Europe decided to to stop to stop with that, and it was on the first of April of 2015. So the media also want to tell that story, but it's a bit of a 
it's a difficult story and it's not really sexy in a way. Mm-hmm. So they want to tell that story by also ma- creating some sort of other story behind it that is more uh, sexy and more easygoing. So at the 1st of April, I get a lot of telephone calls from media, like uh, the radio companies. Uh, so they can ask me to explain what was going on with the milk quota, but also tell something about milk in a more simple way. Uh, so, uh, and they called me because I was the milk sommelier. Mm. And then you see that how media works, because when one person is calling you, then the next then the next media is calling you, and the next media, and the next media. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the, I think, the real start of, of becoming the... The first milk sommelier of the world, in a way. So it started with the radio company, and then uh, Sietzke has a really nice project called the the Milk Salon, the Milking Parlor in in, in uh, a pop-up store in Amsterdam. And there was the, uh, I think, something like Munchies or something. It's an international blog about food. And it was an English article, and then you get the Daily Telegraph mm. uh, writing an article uh, about me. And then you get a telephone call from the BBC radio if you want to go to to London to make a, a radio uh, show on that. And then someone listen it from an international marketing company and then you get a telephone call from South Korea. So that's how it yeah, goes. Yeah, it just kind of took off like a rocket. And then you becoming something that that was not really the idea. And it's still not the idea. I, I'm... I like uh, I like being a milk sommelier, but um, it's not always comfortable because people really give me some authority because of the word sommelier, and I don't feel that authority. Well, but okay, so let's because I wanted so the word connoisseur, right? Yeah. Is that normally used for food? You're, can you be like a wine connoisseur? Uh, I'm not really sure if it's really the the name, but it's it's yeah. You can be connoisseur as well. Because most people are going to use words like aficionado or connoisseur, things like that. And so, you know, if I tell someone that you're a milk sommelier, then it's not going to be long into the conversation before they might repeat it as he's a milk connoisseur or he's a milk aficionado or something like Mm -hmm. that. So it sounds like, I mean, you could have used any of those terms, but your friend, of course, used the term sommelier and it just kind of stuck because I think there is this interesting juxtaposition of wine and milk. You know, because wine is thought of as so elegant and kind of classy and maybe mm-hmm. even like snobby in a way. Um, and then milk is everybody drinks milk. It's, you know, every it's like yeah. a very low person like farmers and whatever. So it's an interesting way to name, you know, what you do as milk sommelier, because, you know, you are putting those two things together, the high class of the word sommelier and then the, you know, every man, per, you know, quality of milk. So was there, I mean, there was obviously, you didn't choose to go sommelier instead of connoisseur or aficionado, but um, would there have been any other kind of word that you think was a better fit? No, no, this, the fit is great. In, in a marketing way, it's, it's great because this is, uh, I think the milk sommelier become, it was becoming big because of the word. Mm. Because if, if I didn't, I did, did do the same milk tastings and I didn't, they in Siske don't give me didn't give me the name sommelier then I, it was no, it was nothing so <laughs> what was it you you were when you met um so you were basically just people were asking your opinion on milk in the beginning so Friesland Campina was the one that you said was starting the digital outlet and then they just kind of wanted you to weigh in and yeah. give your topics about the quota and things like that 
and then it was the it was not Friesland campaign it was the radio company as or the the, mar- the media just asked me uh, uh, not really my opinion but to explain what was going on with the milk quota and also including the the story of the milk sommelier because it's a really nice yeah, so story. so before you were ever like known as the you know milk sommelier, what is it that you were trying to do with milk, or what was your involvement you know with milk? In Nothing. General? I just only wrote the article because Rien asked me. Okay, so you had the friend. He just asked you. Hey, he would asked you? me, and I think oh that's nice because some I did I did already wrote a lot of articles, especially on urban farming or in the past on anarchism. but uh, so it's I I like to write. Uh, especially the short uh, blog type of style. Yeah. So it was really it was a nice question. Uh, can you can you write something about your your passion, fascination, yeah, your yeah. passion in milk? And and I already did. I did some tell something that I really love milk and I drink drink four liters a day. Yeah. But I also want to create a, a more interesting story for the the reader. And uh, then I just put up the, the idea that milk can be terroir. And I th- still think that it can be. Yeah, so it's, it's not something that I just made up to, to only uh, yeah. Uh, ex- yeah, let people just wrote, write an, an interesting article. I want also to do something uh, that they, they go to do something. Well, and, that, and the idea of that, and that's still the idea, is that I want to tell that story to farmers. Because uh, a lot of customers think still is milk is the white stuff and it's just milk. Yeah. But the problem is that most of the farmers also think it's just milk and the white stuff. And it's maybe it's good to tell an anecdote in about that. Well, hold on. I want to oh, I, I okay. go all into the milk. Mm-hmm. But first, what I think is fascinating about you is, um, you know, you hear a lot of people because um, you kind of got famous, right, a little bit. So yes, you, you hear you hear a lot of people talk about um, like if you just kind of stick with your passion, stick with you love, you, you stick with what you love, good things will come, and eventually things can work out. And that's kind of what happened with you, right? It's like what you just said. You've always been passionate about milk since you were a kid. Even drank a ton of milk in college, whatever, because you were a farmer. You understand all of the science behind it and those kind of things. And then you just you have a friend um, ask you to write an article. You you write the article, and then all of a sudden, it kind of one thing leads to another. And then, like you say, you're getting offers from the BBC. Eventually, you go do the South Korean thing. Then CNN. You know, it's like um, you go all the way to California. So what how what was it like that moment when you first start getting? Because like you said, that's what happens with the media. Is it's like a snowball. Yeah. You get one person, and then another reporter sees that. They tell another reporter yeah. kind of thing. So what was that like just as a person going from, hey, I'm just a normal guy, like I'm a farmer. Um, yeah, I wrote this one article about milk, but then all of a sudden, you know, now you start getting these invites from the BBC and stuff like that. How was that whole kind of, you know, process for you? It was really, I was a bit intrigued by it because it's n- it's never my idea to get in the spotlights, but this is not the first time I was in the spotlight. So I was already in the spotlights in the past, I did a lot of things about uh, social farming, like healthcare farming. Uh, and when I was doing that, I get also attention from the media. Uh, but it was never the idea. Uh, the same with urban farming. Uh, Rotterdam, Edible Rotterdam was just one of the first in Europe who really was going into urban farming, especially intra-urban farming, just really inside of the cities. And we get a lot of attention. When I started the farm Uitjaigstad from your own town, uh, we were the biggest at that moment in Europe in an interurban setting. And we get a lot of 
attention, also international. Eh? We went on on every platform in the Netherlands, but also on Chinese television, on English television, everything. So mm. we were on the spotlight as as well. But uh, that was more the story in general, and I was just one of the, the people who who tell that story. But with the Milk Sommelier, it was a bit different because it was really going about me. Mm. It was not the story of uh, social farming or urban farming. No, it was the story of the Milk Sommelier, and the Milk Sommelier was Bas. <laughs> so in a way, that was really... Uh, I was intrigued by it, but also with a sort of distance in a way that... Uh, uh, I don't want to be in the spotlight. That's not something that I'm really. I don't mind. I I can. You can. And now we are sitting just in 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 front of just one person. But if you put me for a, a room with thousand persons, I don't care either. So, but it's not something that I. Uh, I like thousand people more than just one person. I just like the uh, the story in a way or the the, the feeling that I have. Um, so, but that in the in the milk sommelier, especially all those attention was really strange because uh, if you go to South Korea, uh, I earned ridiculous a lot of money just for one and a half day. It was great because uh, <laughs> it gave me some more s- more space and freedom for the rest of the year. But it was also strange how people react on you uh, on the film spot. It was and uh, I was I was we were flying to Seoul. From that to Jeju Island, uh, we were in a really nice hotel. It was great. Uh, that was alwa- already a bit of star thing, mm. uh, but I didn't recognize it at that moment. And then we go to the spot where we just film the the commercial, and there were fifty people, fifty five zero, <laughs> who just walking around me, and I had something like five people only taking care of me. There were people who just, uh, yeah, makeup and food and are you warm enough and do you want anything? So it was really like a star thing, and it's at the end of the day I was really fed up with it, yeah, <laughs> because I want. Uh, uh, I think they, I think there, I was also a really difficult client for them because, uh, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't. Uh, uh, but it was strange, uh, and it was also with the rest. So and especially what. I think intriguing, but also a bit uncomfortable still, is that people uh, uh, talk to me that I'm the authority mm. about the topic. And I, as I already referred, uh, in the land of the blind, I think one eye is king. <laughs> but uh, I still, the, the interesting thing is that every time I learn more about a topic, I know that I have to learn much more. So I still... Every because you learn something and you know that there is still a lot more to learn. So in the beginning, you think in the, as you as you start, especially with younger people, you see they you see that they think they know everything about the topic. But if you know more, you know that there is much more to know. So uh, we talked about that a bit on the podcast uh, in previous episodes. The Dunning Dunning Kruger effect, I think that's what it's called. Okay, where you basically like you start off here, which is at zero, and then you start to get a little bit of knowledge about something, and you think, oh wow, I, I think I actually know quite a bit about this. And then all of a sudden, you learn a little bit more, and you're like, oh my gosh, I know nothing, you know? Yeah. Now you realize how much is out there, and then at that point, you actually start to underestimate your knowledge because of how much is yeah. out there. Um, but you actually, at that point, have to have a pretty good bit to be in that 
conversation. Yeah, no, it, it, it is, but it's it's yeah, it's always a bit uncomfortable. So, so is, is that also a little bit of uh, insecurity in a way of like when people kind of like that what they say of the imposter syndrome stuff of when people start to make you you know any kind of an expert. It's not that I'm I'm not insecure about it, but I think it's always a bit. Uh, it's I I don't like it when people look up to me. Mm. So that's more the I, I just Why? referred. Is there anything? I, no, it's it's also I referred that I also wrote articles about anarchism, and anarchism for me it's just one of the sources that I drink of, and for me I don't like to anyone to be above me, but I don't like to be that people are under me. I lived also a, f- a short time in my life in Ghana, and uh, if you are a white male, there's a lot of people who really. Uh, act to you as as the, that you are the boss or you're more and i i hate it so i i don't like people who are like i don't know the words in english but if they're get sort of on they kruipend they're going to crawl for you mm. because you are the person uh and i don't like that why uh, why did you go to ghana uh it was because my girlfriend she had her uh, her master thesis over there and had a many time at that moment, so I just went off following her for a few months. So how long? So you lived there for what? Uh, just only four months. Four months. Yeah, it was not that much. How, so how was it? Uh, yeah, I was in. I just I just brought her the first time, so she went to Ghana. I just brought her for two weeks, uh, and uh, I didn't. I thought that I didn't like to go out of Europe. Because I th- I thought yeah what I what do I have to do in Africa it's or, or in Ghana it's not something that I'm really was curious about it but when I went went off the plane over there everything was good mm. I really liked it and I loved it so at that moment I had a lot of I worked a lot so I had a lot of uh, extra time on my work uh, so I take that time all that time. And I also take the time of the next year and put it all together in, in three and a half months. And so I went off to uh, to visit her again and help her with her thesis. So she went off to small villages to 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 do her interviews. And I was carrying all the paper at that moment. <laughs> eh? Now you can you, it's now in your phone, but yeah. at that moment you just have to carry papers. So uh, it yeah. So I uh, I've been there, but it was some sort of long holiday when she worked. And I just went off uh, in the trotros. There are small buses that just just uh, yeah traveling a bit around. At that moment, Accra or the the places where she uh, did her uh, thesis, and I think it was Accra Pong or something. But it was nice. But it's uh, so. What did you, what did you do every day when you were there? When you weren't doing the thesis stuff? Uh, yeah, just just go to the market or uh, there. Uh, she the first months she lived on the um, university co- uh, college uh, and it is really nice it's a it's a really nice complex it, uh, Ghana was originally was from the English so they uh, they uh, made or they 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 uh, they created uh, a university with the idea to build it in India because that was also from them at that moment but that didn't go on so they built the same building in Ghana and it was like an Indian style, so it was really strange in oh a way. Oh wow! Uh, but it was really like a yeah, it, uh, really really big long roads with the big buildings. They were white with a sort of uh, how do you call it? the slopey roofs. Mm-hmm. And we lived on the on the premises in uh, one of the rooms of uh, of uh, the of the professors. 
and that was really near the the uh, the, called? the the arboretum so where the all the big trees and the plants are so i went uh, went off for a walk many times to the trees as well and to go to accra just went into accra as uh, it's a really nice city to just walk around and and we had some friends over there as well so the first time when we went there we were uh, hosted by a, a family uh, Ghanaian family and we lived there for two weeks with them and it was great so there were some sort of friends in a way so we they also took us around and I just uh, helped them with shoppings and that sort of thing just normal life as far as possible mm. was there anything um, you felt kind of when you got back to the Netherlands after the three and a half months that you felt like changed or you were kind of different after that experience mm. I mean, the only, only thing, but I think what Ghana brought me, and that's also nice in, to referring to the Milk Sommelier as well, that I really like to travel. Mm. And not l- only liking to travel, but also to be somewhere else where you don't know things. And what's, what was really different in Ghana that I didn't experience anything anywhere else anymore is that Ghana was so different than our European style of life at that moment that I felt in a way as a newborn that you can experience everything new so there everything that you what you taste feel or people how they act to you because in africa the, the way how they react on you is different than in europe so sometimes people uh, look a bit angry but they're not angry or they laugh but they're not really laughing or they uh, they say something but they mean something else so that was you is some sort of like a new uh, exploration in a way Mm -hmm. and that's what i think ghana gives me that i really like to travel uh as a way as an exploration so just to see to see new people and see new behaviors or other behaviors than yourself and i think it's uh, uh it gives me something that i am more relaxed on other opinions of people Mm. so i i'm it's always something like uh it's a bit maybe to going to the zoo to see the, it's uh, to see another creature, and really uh, intrigued by his behavior in a way. Uh, and it's not that I see uh, people from other countries as other creatures, but it's it's a different type of uh, of people how they react. So it's in 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 South Korea it was also interesting. It's another culture than we have is in here. But also going to the states, I've been to the west and I've been to the east. Um, and uh, it's uh, to big cities and in, in the outbacks and and go to the farms, and it's always interesting on how people react in that sort of environment and their culture and their social background. And well, it's it's interesting because um, so I think you were my uh, second English student ever, maybe here in the Netherlands. Okay. <laughs> so I had some in Spain before, but um, and you were like. Uh, super i mean i i hadn't been in the netherlands that long right i was living mm-hmm. in amsterdam at the time coming by train and you were you like kind of educated me on so many dutch things so you brought me my first uh, drops <laughs> you <laughs> brought me um um oh, what was it um strope waffle you brought me that really good strope waffle from Halda. Halda, yeah of course where that, i come from yeah you um Kompuiser. <laughs> <laughs> you you brought me um what else I mean, you used to just bring me tons of stuff and then you would we, we used to go through these walks like through the city like back towards uh, central station and then we would split up 
um, and you would just tell me all about Rotterdam and kind of like the history of the architecture and this building and that building. Um, and that was really helpful for me when I first got here because like what you're talking about of um, when you go to a new place and you, you kind of realize like how different things can be from what you're used to, it was very energizing, you know, for me, but it was also like very intimidating because, mm. and I'm, I think the Netherlands is quite similar to, uh, to the U S but at the same time, it's still very different. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was a great help for me to kind of have you like this super Dutch guy who's like super, you know, I'm, like I'm really Dutch, <laughs> you're quite, you're quite passionate about, I think Dutch, you know, like culture and stuff like that. And I mean, obviously look milk, <laughs> you went with that whole thing and ran with it. Um, but that was really helpful for me to kind of have, you know, somebody here to kind of guide me through all that stuff. Yeah. I, th I, I really enjoyed the walks at that moment as well. Yeah. To, uh, but also that you, we had a really nice talks about what was going on in the States at that moment right, with Trump at this yep. moment. And you're coming from, I think, from a, what you called a blue background. Your, your father was a blue kind of job. Blue collar. Blue collar job. Blue -collar. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's also interesting. And Texas. And, uh, yeah. And at, at the time, there were, there were quite a lot of, um, you know, like Christina and I last time, we talked about the refugee crisis. And because um, that was, you know, mm -hmm. kind of at its height when we first met. And we used to discuss that and all kinds of different things. And um, so one thing we never really did discuss much, you mentioned the anarchist stuff earlier. But um, so you said that you, you had attention from the media and stuff before you ever did the milk sommelier stuff. Yeah. Um, and I only know a little bit about the farming and I don't know what all you can discuss because I don't know much about the whole, uh, thing, but why, uh, I, I know quite a few Dutch people where it's like, if you're in the U S and you say, I'm an anarchist, that just means like you hate the government. But here, if you say I'm an anarchist, there's much more like to that belief. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot more, I think, uh, I guess, deliberate, like that stands for something here. So when you say like I was, you know, involved, like, you know, involved in the anarchy stuff or whatever, what does that actually mean? It also involves in myself as well. So energy, uh, I think I was 17 and there was one guy, he said, I'm an anarchist. And I thought, Dennis, it was his name, Dennis, I think you are a lot, but you're not an anarchist. <laughs> But I didn't know what it was, so I wrote an, uh, uh, I did a, a thesis or something for Dutch lessons about anarchism, and I really learned a lot and all the, the where it comes from and that sort of thing. And at that moment, I'm from a left-wing background in a way, so I was really see it as a left-wing thing, as a what you if you have you have a sort of streams in in anarchism and the syndicalist stream is really uh, dominant also in the Netherlands. Uh, so uh, so I wrote another lot of yeah a lot of books. I still have something like I think read read a lot of books. Uh, wrote no what I called wrote them? reading no 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 uh, you read reading read yes. okay <laughs> that's there's the, the English teacher <laughs> again. <laughs> Well, I mean, you can't just claim to write a bunch of books no, no, about no, no, it. No, 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 no. <laughs> I just bought a lot. So I, I think I still have something like three, three meters of books in uh, about anarchism, but Jeez. also more the, the, the philosophical way. And it's for me, it's more philosophical. Uh, so I want to be free, but I also want to uh, the respect the liberty of others. Uh, at that moment, it was really political for me. For me now, at this moment, it's more philosophical. I think anarchism is one of the sources that I drink of, but it's not something that really works for me at this moment. Uh, but 
what was uh, I started as sort of syndicalist. I also squat houses uh, in Gouda and in Maastricht. And um, can you explain what that means? A squat is that you just you there's an empty house and you just break in. You go in. You you remove the the locks and you put your locks on it and then it's yours. In way. Why did that become? Because it was like a squatters movement here in the Netherlands, right? Yeah, it's more like the '80s. So I was, I'm, I'm not that old, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it, it was really, uh, it was really a big movement. Yeah. Why? Uh, it was more in the '90s because there was, a, there were not much people uh, who had possible possibility to 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 hire a house or a place to to live, and there were a lot of pe- places that were empty, so they just squatted. And it was also the moment that uh, we had a really big recession. So a lot of, especially young people, uh, didn't have jobs. So not much money, enough time, a lot of empty houses, no ha- no place to, to stay. So you just take your ride and go into the house. Mm. Um, so uh, it's more, I think, about the, how do you call it? The, 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 the surrounding at that moment was really okay to just start going to the movement and it was not only about living but it was also about taking care of yourself do it yourself and i that's the mentality that i still like and so i just want to do things myself in my own way and don't want to harm others um, so that's that's uh, uh yeah so th- that's also why i'm becoming an entrepreneur not to the idea is not to uh, not to create things, but create uh, some sort of liberty for myself to do things as as I think I like to do it, and also take care of myself. So, how did you? How what was it like when you? Because you said you squatted houses in uh, Howda. How was how was it like? You just go, you scout it out, you find one that you think would be decent, and then you just you just break in. It's a bit more difficult than allegedly that. allegedly yeah yeah but you go also go to <laughs> do especially a lot of research about uh, okay who's the owner how long time how, how long uh, the house was already empty is it a house that has a, a, a living permit on it that sort of thing so there's a lot of rules uh, around squatting and at that moment it was a bit more difficult than nowadays because now you go on internet you go to the it's cadaster yeah. and you find everything yeah but uh, it's nice to tell to tell something about the squat that we did in Maastricht, we just find a really nice house. It was a really expensive one, uh, and we break in and we just find out in Maastricht on the cadaster who the owner was and how long it was empty and that sort of thing. But you, that was the the local cadaster, but it was not always up to date. So the regional cadaster in Roermond was was up to date. Mm. Uh, so when the moment when we squatted, just a few days before, there was a new owner, and it was not uh, changed at the cadaster in Maastricht already, but oh, it was no. in uh, Roermond. So when we squatted, we were it was illegal. So we get the the cops in front, and they said you have to go out, and if you don't go out, we are going to be arrested. And we just find out, okay, it is not, it doesn't really work to stay inside because yeah, you're it's not there. The, the uh, we don't yeah. You're, you know that you're that you at the end of the day you are in prison and you don't live. Yeah. So the same day we just squat a few other houses uh, with the same police and then we it was okay. But um, so but nowadays it's much easier in that way. But there the the rules changing all the time. So in the 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 days that I started 
or the days in the 1980s you had to go to squat the house with a bed and a chair and that sort of things to go put in the house and to say okay now i'm living because there's a chair and a bed and a table mm. and when i was squatting in the in 90s it, the the rules were already changing and, and nowadays there, there are other rules again so uh, you have to really get into the legal stuff before you can squat because now there's like organizations and stuff like i have some friends who um live in houses that are like they're technically squatting but like they've one of them's lived there i think for like 10 years you yep. know and it's like it's a whole system now but, but is it is it squatting or anti-squatting i think it's anti-squatting. oh there's anti-squatting yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so uh yeah there's some sort of night i didn't i don't know the story anymore who's writing it but there's a nice story if you say that your father is uh is a left-wing person then you was one of the squatters and if you are uh your father is more the conservative liberal thing like in the netherlands is that is the vvd or something the vvd it's it's they called liberals but there's a liberal stream and a and a more uh conservative stream just in one so it's not like in the states uh and if, but if your father was voting on the vvd then you were an anti-squatter so but uh, mm. i think it's not anymore but uh, but these people that that i know that have done it it was just basically like um it's kind of more farmhouses like kind of out in the country and it's basically like they don't want him to get i think bought by some other thing but then also if you leave it vacant then like you know yeah. kind of yeah not nice house guests might yeah. come in so yeah um, but there's also a way if you just anti-squatter they can put you out every moment because you just pay some sort of rent mm -hmm. and squatting is more like a legal thing so if the owner wants to get you out they have to go to court uh, but there there's a there's a whole in squatting there's a, a more political background to why you do it in theory because a lot of people just want to live and it's more like the, the cultural thing around being in a group as squatters that a lot of people just uh, s let them start squatting I think for me it was a more political thing so it, I didn't want to what were you trying to accomplish politically by squatting it was more about that I thought at that moment that if you have uh, uh, you have a house and there's a lot of people who are looking for a house then it's 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 not really nice in a way to leave it empty Right. So you're trying to make this point that yes, yeah, this is not a good situation. It's here. not a good situation. Yeah. All right. Uh, now, as a as a house owner, I <laughs> am a bit and more uh, capitalist <laughs> part of my uh, anarchy of my life. goes away once. Yeah, yeah. sometimes. <laughs> but I think it's still. Uh, but for me, but but and that's I think for a lot of especially young people, it was squatting is really nice because it's really about doing do it yourself. So. I squat the house. There was no water, so I creating a, a a line of water, and we uh, we created. We want to have uh, a, a a nice window, so we cre just recreated the window. So I learned a lot about it. Eh? I learned to yeah, to to uh, to do things and not with my knowledge, but just do it. So uh, I have my father is really uh, practical, but when I was doing something at home. He just said, he just pushed me away. So I, I can do it. Mm. And now there was nothing to push me away. So I can just do it. Right. Okay. Just buy a saw and just make a hole. Yeah. Okay. How to close it. Okay. I don't know. Just, but, but uh, then you have friends who can help you. And so that was, you said that was pipe in the fitting and that sort of thing. Oh, it's gosh. great. Yeah. So it's that was in the nineties. You said the, yes, your yeah. school. Okay. So, yeah. um, so basically you go from high school 
and then at some point you start doing the squatting. When is that? Uh, I was uh, it was twenty. I was twenty. And you okay. Yeah, and so yeah. then, when do you start with the kind of urban farming stuff? Uh, the farming stuff was already when during the squatting time. So when I was from Gouda going to to Maastricht, I was working in healthcare. I'm originally I'm coming from healthcare, and I had a healthcare farm in Maastricht. Uh, then I went to Rotterdam. Uh, we bought a new house. Behind the house, there was a, an empty spot. I wanted to. At the, uh, I did a. Uh, uh, at that moment, I go part time to a school called the Warmonderhof. That's a biodynamic school, in a course that was about healthcare farming. And at the end of every course, you write a, an ondernemersplan, uh, a business plan. A business plan. Uh, so I wrote a business plan about a healthcare garden in Rotterdam on that spot behind my new house. Uh, and I had uh, a healthcare garden, healthcare garden, yeah, healthy garden or something. Um, and I had uh, to, I have to explain to the neighbor what I was one I wanted to do. So I create them sort of uh, act, uh, how do you call it? Uh, open dag. Uh, it's like a I don't know. Oh, like like open days. All like yeah, some go. sort of event, a small yeah. event to just explain what I wanted to oh, do. Oh, like a little town hall kind of yeah, thing yeah. where people... Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I just created some sort of poster and I said, uh, uh, what about f- farming outside? Farming in the city. So city farming. Mm. Something was that on the poster. Uh, and uh, Rien, the guy from the milk, uh, for the milk story from Friesland Campina, um, uh, one of his colleagues just find that poster and she get a, they get it at that moment, they get a small assignment from the local, I think from the international, go- for the national government uh, to make some sort of event, a more discussion event about city farming. So they invited me to do that event. Mm. And it was a really nice event in a way. It was a small event. So we had, uh, I think something like uh, 20 people around the table and there were, from really different backgrounds. So we had in the, the real estate companies, the big ones, and we had, uh, 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 I call it, uh, professors from Wageningen, uh, and also some practic- practical guys like me, and some, uh, I refer them as uh, uh, women in uh, flowering dresses, a bit like uh, hippie-like people. Uh, okay, okay. And it was a really interesting um, uh, situation because you see that the people the people from the real estate in the gray suits and uh, the woman in the in the hippie like so they they had no conversation they didn't find each other ah. and i was something with uh, some other people more in the middle like idealistic in a way but also practical and just do it and what can we do so um, at the end of that that uh, that mo uh, or that day uh, at Portal, does the, the organization decided not to go on for the assignment for the for the national government because there was nothing fruitful in that at that moment started to happen. But I think yeah, there are some people in the room they are interesting. So we put them back on the on a small table together, and we started with six people just discussing. Okay, what can urban farming do for Rotterdam? And that become edible Rotterdam. Edible Rotterdam. Edible Rotterdam. Eight by Rotterdam. So what did that? What was that? It was a think tank, as we referred it as a, a, about urban farming. Can you so pull that over a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, uh, uh, and we just discuss urban farming and, and look around the world everywhere uh, on the topic urban farming for three years or something. Why was it important to have urban farming here in Rotterdam? Um, there are more things, but the, the, the thing where it started with was more the social impact. Mm. Uh, but from the beginning, and that's uh, because there were six people on the table. So Nicole, uh, that was the, the, the founder of what we now call the Rotterdamse Oogst, the, the market. But the, the in the beginning, they had a, an, a festival and a small restaurant called Van der Boer. Uh, Jan Willem van der Schans, he was from Wageningen University. So he was a researcher. Uh, Paul de Graaf, he's an architect researcher. He's also still in urban farming, especially in, in food forests. Uh, Cesar Peren, he was an, he's an architect from SuperU Studios. Uh, at that moment, 2012 architects really going into using um, material that is already there to rebuild things. Mm. Uh, do I forget something? Uh, no, I think there were... Yeah, uh, Jos de Krieger is also from... Uh, but so we were, we were put together and it was really nice to discuss this topic from all those different angles. Marja was also... Marja Versteger, was, she was from uh, Het Portaal, but she was really into the, the social part. And it was really... And Rien, of course. So it was really nice to discuss from all those different angles the topic of urban farming and what it can do for Rotterdam. So the social impact, but also the food impact, especially if we go, if we look to the States, uh, urban farming was more about uh, uh, food reliability. Mm. Yeah, but it is, they call it about, they, they, in the States they talk about food deserts. In the Netherlands it's, it's a bit different. But it was really nice to go from all those different angles, from entrepreneurs, from uh, architecture point of view, from city uh, planning, from uh, business, from uh, uh, culinary point of view, all those types. So we, we talked with each other for three years. But... Uh, only Nicole and me coming from a background from that we have to do want we want to do something. So Nicole started to to the restaurant uh, uh, Van de Boer, and I at that moment just want to start also not talking anymore. Only uh, it's good to know that I just quit the uh, the healthcare farm. I just decided not to do it. Why we don't leave we leave it for now. So I want to start urban farming in the Netherlands and I, w I want to create impact. So with all the things that we discuss, I want to create something that has impact. And that's at the end, it, it, it's something like a, a, a road of or four to five years. But at the end, Uitjaarstad uh, was there. And Uitjaarstad was the, the urban farm uh, at Mar uh, near Marconiplein. Uh, so how did that create impact? The idea was I, I want to put a farm in a real urban environment. And the idea for me at that moment was, uh, I just had two other founders, but the idea for that farm was, I'm, I'm the, I was the person who just started with the farm. Uh, but the, my idea at that moment, I just want to bring farming into the city to let customers or, or just or, or burgers, civilians, just learn about where their foods come from. Mm. That was the idea at that moment. So 
interestingly because um you were the first person i think that ever told me about the topic of like happy chickens and happy cows and mm -hmm. stuff like that and i had never really thought about it you know much before that but now i think that is one of the things that i care most about is this whole factory farming stuff and you know how terrible that whole industry is and so I have a colleague uh, or a former colleague now, but he's also kind of an anarchist. <laughs> nice people. But, <laughs> but he had this idea that, um, you know, every single package of food should have the information on there of how it was prepared and how it got to that point. Um, and so it's like, you know, same with chicken or with, you know, gelatin candy, any of this stuff, like he says, it should say on there exactly mm -hmm. how this is made because then he thinks a lot of people, you know, wouldn't actually buy and, and eat the products that they do. And um, it's interesting because so with this urban farming stuff, is that kind of part of the hope is that you're going to teach people to kind of connect more to the source of there actually is a place where this food comes from besides the supermarket shelf? Yeah. That's what I also want to show them, just to see, let them show how things were working, but also that there are a lot of discussions and things in a side discussion as a farmer, what you can do. And it's really nice that you refer to chicken because it's there's also a nice anecdote about chicken and at Uitjegerstad. Um, so for me, Uitjegerstad was more the production of food was really a big topic. I found it really important that there was real production. Uh, but uh, the main thing is that we were a story company. Mm. So I want to tell stories, and I want to tell stories by production. Uh, we started the first batch of chicken, we started with Ross 308. And Ross 308, that's what we called in the Netherlands as plofkip. So they're the fast growing chicken. Um, so we get small chicks from the university. Um, uh, they bring us to us and uh, Ross can grow from, uh, not from a small chick to a, uh, a chicken for butcher in five weeks. Jeez. So that's a fast one. Uh, but we had a, s a slow system. That's like a tomato. <laughs> yeah, 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 insanely yeah, yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really fast. So that this that's the possibility of the ROS. But it's also the ROS is created to do that. So the question is, if you put ROS 308 in another type of system, a slow system, is it good for the chicken? Because the chicken is created for that system. So we just started with the ROS uh, because we were a, a slower system. Our first batch of chicken became something like seven or eight weeks at that moment. And then we put all the ROS go to the butcher and slaughter them. But there was one chicken. She just, she just, um, she, how do you call it? She verstopte uh, zich. So she was hiding. <laughs> so we just missed her. So at the end, there was one chicken left. And we called her Rosa, Rosa because she was Ross. And we decided to let her stay. So the next batch, and that was the batch that we really want, really want to start with, that was Hubbard, Hubbard 758. And that's a more slower chicken that can grow in seven weeks and in an organic standard, something like 11 to 12 weeks. So that's a slow chicken, slow but chicken. An, uh, a normal chicken start to be adult at 20 weeks so it's good to know that as well so right. it's 12 is not really mature but we uh, so we we just put her in the with the rest of the hubbards and we decided to let her stay because for us she was a really good story so when i had a, a tour around the farm i show people 
uh, Rosa. And I tell her, okay, Rosa is created as a chicken, a Ross 308, to go to, to slaughterhouse in five weeks. Uh, and she, uh, the only thing that she wants to do is, f- is eating, 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 eating. And when she's getting really heavy, because the, 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 the legs of a, of a meat chicken, is n- they are not really... Uh, they're, they're in the in the how do you call it in the in the breeding they are not really focusing on the legs so the legs are a bit too small for the big body because mm, they want the breasts yes yes so we said yeah probably at the end she's she she will be obese and at the end she will have problems with breeding and also with walking mm. so the question is, what I, I asked them is, what is animal welfare for Rosa? Is animal welfare for Rosa to let her walk as long as she can and die by nature? Or is Rosa better off to go to butcher? And that was one of the stories that we told. And it's good to, to, let, to let people know that if she will st- stay longer, then her death will be not that pretty yeah. either. So uh, it was really nice to, to, so that was a good story to really let people go into the, the, the complexity of farming and all the, the aesthetics, or the, the not aesthetics, the, the ethical mm. part of farming as well. Uh, maybe it's good to know the end of Rosa as well to tell her. She went to become 32 weeks, dying by a heart attack and also having really big troubles by breeding. But the interesting thing was that she laid two eggs and she's not creating to lay eggs. So that was really uh, really nice, I think. And one of the eggs was also bred by, the, by a rooster. So she was, uh, she was taken by a rooster. <laughs> so one of the eggs was also, uh, it was okay. So we put them in the, in the, in the breeding machine in the egg machine and there was a chick coming out of it so ah, that's nice but answer. but um when she died the the my one of my farmers rene she he was going into the to the stable and she was laying in front of him and he didn't see her because it was a bit dark so he felt over rosa and uh so he, he take her out and we just put her on a on a weegschaal on a how do you call it, scale mm. to weigh her and she was seven kilos. Wow. So she was really, really heavy. And not uh, so the, uh, her body was just giving up. So when you say these chickens are, you know, she's not created for that or whatever, you mean the way that they're bred and yeah. so the different... So it's, it's, always, it's always difficult. It's not a really big topic nowadays, but there's a, at the time there was a really big topic about plofkippen. And they say, yeah, they have to get better life. They have, they need more space, and they get to have a longer life. But the problem is, it's not about the chicken; it's about the system. So we're creating a system, and with that system, we create the chicken. The chicken is the chicken that we created is part of that system that we designed in a way. So uh, it's, that's also always interesting because people see farming as a natural thing, and farming is net, not natural. Farming is culture. Uh, and it depends on the farm, on how, uh, in every farm there is a, a part of nature. So we, we it's an, some for orchestra of nature. So we orchestra the nature in a way, 
And it depends on the system that you choose, how much nature you let involved in your system. That's interesting because, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess like one of the technical terms, agriculture, you know, I never really think about the word culture in that. I think the English word of agriculture is much better than landbouw mm. in the Dutch. It's, it, for me, it's really agriculture. I see also agriculture in general as an as a cultural act instead of a productional or a financial act. Well, it's it, also that, but cultural is the, is the main thing, I think. It is, but you, you made an interesting point there when you said like people think, a lot of people think farming is nature, but it's really not. It's actually quite far from nature. Um, so for instance, back in, I think, April, I kind of got on this big kick of trying to find, first I was looking for grass-fed beef. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, I can help you with that. <laughs> I don't want to go into too much of the kind of like the hippie stuff of what I was mm-hmm. feeling at the time or whatever. But basically, I was trying to find a way to. Um, ki- so I didn't like the idea that, say, these cows are just raised to be slaughtered. So even even when I started looking for kind of free range cattle and grass fed cattle and things like that, they have these these cows out in New Zealand, you know, beautiful cows, like about as close to wild cattle as you can get now. And um, what they do is they kind of raise them, and then at some point between the age of three and five, they're slaughtered. Um, now, if you try to find online like what the actual um, you know lifespan of these cows would be, it said that they could live up to eight years old. So even that, I'm still thinking like I don't really because if I'm trying to go as far as I can ethically here mm-hmm. and say okay, I want to go as far as I can, and then I'll stop wherever it's a reasonable place that I have to stop. But I thought, okay, well, having a cow that's slaughtered at the age of three when it could have lived to eight, that's not what I'm looking for right here. So even the grass fed, like even the kind of, you know, and so the more research I do on that, trying to find out what is the actual natural lifespan of a cow. Well, they say we really don't know because to be honest, it can be 20. Yeah. The thing is that wild cattle aren't really a thing, you know, like the, the cattle that we have today have been bred over so many, you know, thousands of years, basically to be the way that they are. They're not really wild animals at all anymore. They're just domestic, you know, animals. So they have been bred exactly like you just said with the chickens, they have been bred to mature at a certain point to have, you know, be lean in certain areas, to have fat in certain areas, you know, like all of this stuff stuff has been designed by humans for so long that it's just like you're talking about. It's not like you would. And so what they said with a lot of these cows is that if they're not on a farm being looking, looked after by farmers, they have a lot of medical problems and that a lot where a lot of the money from, you know, cattle farmers comes from is actually treating these animals whenever they have, you know, sicknesses and the little different medical conditions that they can have. So basically the point was that there really is, you know, you have no idea how, how long a cow might live if you don't slaughter it because that's what they're bred to do. Yep. So it's very difficult to kind of, you know, like if you're trying to find an all natural way to consume beef, it's, it's not exactly easy, no. you know. But the ways, do we want to have it natural? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm it's good to know, it's good to, do, uh, my opinion, there's, there's the five freedoms of Bramble. For, for for animals and one of them is that uh, animals can react as normal or naturally as possible so that's as a farmer I want that to do to really go into the chicken of the, the chickenness of the chicken or the, f- the pigness of the pig as uh, Joel Salatin said pigness of the pig the pigness of the pig so what's the what's the what's a pig if you go to look to a pig what's a pig what does it how does it behave what does it like and that's something that you create in your system and also use it in your system so i think it's not 
I think it's okay to slaughter them at the end in a way. Yeah, so I'm in a star, as a beginning squatter anarchist, you have to be vegan. <laughs> and I always become vegan, but when I'm starting at the farm, it was at the same time. I see, okay, vegan is not for me because I think animals are part of, of farming, also for the, the healthiness of the soil. So, but to go back to your question or, or, or your, your inner discussion, uh, it's, I think as person, you have to find a way for yourself what you think it's, it's okay. And it can also be a, a search in a way, so it will change. And, uh, but if you, s if you think something and say something, then you have to act like it. So if you think that you don't need, want to eat meat anymore because you think it's not okay, don't do it. So that's your freedom and it's also, but also your, not only your freedom, but also your responsibility to act in the way, in your way, in your own way. Uh, but don't bother me with it mm. in a way. Um, so. Um, well, that's interesting though, right? Because this is one of those things yeah. where it's like, I totally agree with the anarchist yeah. kind of way of the libertarian of like, you know, John Stuart Mill type people of, you know, if you're not harming anybody else, then I don't. But when you, what you talked about before is like, with the system, right? Yeah. This, this whole, and I mean, I, I eat meat, right? I'm not trying to pretend that no, I'm a vegan or anything I, like I that. I know that you eat meat. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if you if you, you eat vegetables nowadays because okay, I when I, I when I just start to know you, <laughs> we just go to eat something and you just leave the vegetables. You only eat the meat. <laughs> so yeah, I've changed. <laughs> <laughs> I eat mostly vegetables now, and then a you know a little bit of I wouldn't say a little bit of meat, like one chicken breast for sure. Um, like one fillet of salmon. Okay, yeah. okay. Deer meat. I eat a lot of deer meat now. Okay, but nice. um, <laughs> it's so funny that. Oh yeah, five years ago, I think we would. You used to go on those walks, and then I would stop at Burger King at Central Station after. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But to, okay, to that point though, it's what I'm trying to say is that that whole system exists to feed people, yes. right? And so it is kind of one of those things that if if all, if all those people who think that it's wrong just sit back and say, okay, well, and, you, and other people say, well, just don't come at me with it. You eat what you want to eat, I'll eat what I want to eat. But if everybody kind of continues to do that, the system itself doesn't change too much. And I think that, I guess where the, you know, maybe it goes too far when you're telling people that they should not eat meat at all. But I do support the people who are trying to kind of bring awareness and bring a stop to the level of factory farming that we've gotten to yeah. now because it's just so out of control. And, yeah. and, and like but that, that's what I just wanted to show them at Uitjaarstad and I still want to do that. So what I do is I tell my story, as in this case, I'm, I'm now a, I'm a farmer again, growing vegetables, but I want to take people on the land and tell what I do and what sort of decisions I make in which context and with, with, with targets I have. So it's also about uh, what's your vision, targets, what's your, uh, the, what the context and what's your, the means that you have like money, uh, uh, tractors and that sort of thing. And that decide what you're going to do. And the context is about soil and location and that sort of thing. So it's more that I tell that. And sometimes I also tell that I have higher goals so for my new farm i want to go to no till but i know that i cannot what does that mean no tail i don't want to uh throw over the soil anymore so i want to leave the soil intact as much as possible mm. but i know that in the first week first years i need to till it mm. um, in the beginning so i just bought a new tractor uh, it's will coming in the first of 
March, That's I hope. Exciting. A Ferrari. <laughs> oh. Very nice one. <laughs> green one. Uh, just to till the soil. And I think and I hope that in this year I will till the soil, I think, five times. And then I think lo- next year it will be two times. And after that, I hope I will. it will manage to do it only once a year and only in a small first five centimeters of the soil. Uh, so that's that's my goal. But how to get there, this is what I hope. But maybe yeah. I need to do more, and this was the same. So I I tell them all my all the things that I'm taking in consideration to do that. And then I ask them, do you think that's okay? Then you buy it with me. If you don't think it's okay, I don't care, then you buy something somewhere else. So uh, that was the same at Uitjaarstad. That's I w- I wanted to tell the story and I want to show them what to do and, and how I did it. Uh, and I don't feel offended if someone chooses differently. So what is that? What does that accomplish? Because so you're talking about you have a farm now, yeah. and you're you're selling that to people in Rotterdam or the Hague. I'm, I sell directly to. So it's it's what they call it in English. It's called CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Mm-hmm. In the Netherlands, we call it Pergola Associatie of Gemeenschapslandbouw. And what I do is that I uh, I'm a farmer. I farm on a piece of land. Uh, and I have customers, and the customers are part of my farm. So they are they are shareholders. Mm. In English, they called shareholders. Uh, so they pay me upfront for the whole season, and they, in, in my case, they can harvest every week. So they have to come there and harvest it. They have to harvest, yeah. Oh man! So they go there and they can harvest. And my season is from the first of May till the end of November. So and I say that I can grow something like five crops a week. In the beginning, it will be less, and in summer times, it's more, and in the winter, it will be also a bit less than five. And they they can they can harvest, but it's for me, it's also to that's what I like. It's also for me that it's there's a community around it. So I like that. I like a lot of people around me, and I think it's also nice. They go, they have they have to be on the land to harvest their their stuff and they can ask me a lot of things how and many I people do you have doing this now uh i just started so it's my first season on the new location so at this moment i have 16 mouth to feed 16 one six <laughs> uh as a start but it's i just started just one month and there is no f- wow no, 16 no, people in a month there, there's not not much not much uh, there's nothing to see yet so it's it's because it's really wet at this moment so i'm still okay and it's i didn't do much about uh, marketing so my goal is to have at least 60 mouth, 60, six, wor- six zero to feet this year and hopefully 100. That's why you came on the Lucas Weaver show. Of get, course, get of course. You know, and you know, I'm always into marketing and that sort of <laughs> thing. I always want to sell. No, I don't want to uh, because I'm convinced that people will come. No, but so the, what you're kind of offering people is the chance to see where their food comes from. Yeah. So, ev- so like a lot of people go buy their food from the market because they assume that it's local and they assume that it's fresh and all this stuff. But so for you, they actually have to come harvest it themselves. Yeah. So they get the chance to basically share a farm in a way. Yeah. And so people who, you know, don't have a farm in their backyard that they can grow crops, they can actually, so I guess they pay you up front, you said in the beginning of the season. Yeah. And then for the rest of that season, they can now come once a week and harvest their yes. their food. Yeah, yeah. And that's in, really and interesting. In, and in my part is that I don't harvest for them, but that's more for me because I only have something like three days a week left for farming. 
uh, and I don't have the time to also harvest. I really like to harvest myself because the quality that they can deliver is probably much higher if I harvest. But it will also, uh, it will, uh, yeah, there, there, if I want to harvest, it will take me something like two days. And what kind of questions uh, do these people ask you? You said they like to ask you questions about the food and the process. What are yeah, they, they it's ask? more like, okay, how do I, uh, how do I harvest a salad? Or what, uh, I also grow some more special things. And I say, okay, what do I, what do I have to do with it? And I think the in the questions with vegetables are a bit less than with meat. Meat is always interesting. If mm. you're having um, the topic of meat, there is so much questions. So they can also get meat from your farm? Or not not for me, but there's uh, uh, I farm at uh, the location of Roe and Femke. It's a boerderij Landlust in Maasland. Uh, and they uh, have uh, grass-fed uh, dairy cows, mm. uh, Jersey cows, and they have uh, chickens on pasture uh, with eggs. Uh, and I just started with vegetables and maybe I'm going to expand later as well with some fruits, maybe some chicken, meat chicken, I think. I, I like meat chicken to do and uh, maybe also some some pigs, but it will, we will see. And where where is your farm located? It's in Maasland, that's Maas. a uh, Middendelfland. So okay. it's something, yeah, in Rotterdam, it's something like a 20, 25 minute drive, uh, depends on where you come from. Uh, but it's nice it's near Schiphol and Maasland is really beautiful. And if people want to join the the farming like cooperative, they just reach out to you and ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They go to uh, you, there. I have my first website in years <laughs> because I never have cards and websites. That, uh, I don't uh, need to. But in this case, it's it's very really handy. It's called hetmiddenland.nl, and there you can just uh, uh, yeah read uh, how things work and what it will cost. Uh, and what I want to achieve. Uh, so, uh, yeah. That's no, it's uh, very nice. So I want to basically end with this because we have to get you out of here soon because you have to go teach, right? In, in the Hague? Not, not today. Not today. I'm going to, I want to go at home to eat with my wife or my girlfriend oh. because uh, the kids are at school after a few weeks. But I also teach. So I teach in the, at Lentis Melachton in Blijswijk. I teach uh, VMBO kids and MBO kids. On, uh, on, yeah, not really farming in the green environment in a way. So I teach butter making and uh, and koi verrijking. Really sounds uh, yeah. fascinating. Fascinating, <laughs> it is, it is. No, but so what, what is, is that um, I kind of cut you off from this much earlier uh, when I said we would go back to it, which is, so um, we started with the whole milk thing, right? You're the yep. milk sommelier, <laughs> disputed by you. <laughs> so, but um, what is it? Because I think most people, they go to the supermarket, they get the same brand of milk. Maybe they get a different brand if it's in the bonus or something like that. Um, but milk, basically, to most people, I think, tastes the same every single time. And you might have different brands that you prefer. Maybe you, you know, prefer half full, 2%, whatever. But one 2% of the... 2% is American. I know, I know, I know. But I have American audiences. As yeah, well, yeah, so yeah, I have yeah. to translate both. I like I like two percent. Two two percent is good. Yeah, yeah. But vitamin D is uh, I think a little better, um, but they're they're both good. Don't, uh, don't put vitamin D in it. <laughs> okay. okay. Before discussion. we <laughs> before we get off into a huge argument, because I'm also passionate about milk. <laughs> <laughs> um, why is it that actually? Because you were talking about how one of the things that made you kind of interested in in milk in the beginning was that if you're not getting it from a mass-produced source like you would at the supermarket, when you taste real milk before they do all that stuff to it, milk can taste different from every single cow. It can taste different from every single farm. Um, why is that? What is it about milk that we're not experiencing as normal supermarket you know, milk consumers? 
uh, because it is uh, a main thing is that milk is just a, 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 a product to start to do something with it for something else. Yeah, uh, eat it with your porridge or in the in the states with your cornflakes. Oh yeah, man! Uh, I like it as well. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's it's just not the the yeah, and it's of course if you milk cows, you get a lot of milk. Yeah, it's it's uh, if you just have a kettle of uh, in the Netherlands, it's something like in general, it's something like hundred cows kettle, and if you they if they are low producing cows, then it's fifteen liters a day. And then it's still a lot. Mm. Yeah? So it's uh, uh, in the States, it's something like 600 cows in general. So that's much more. Yeah, well, I mean. But you have more, much more land. So it's sure. uh, it's okay. Uh, but um, so it's it's in that case, it's it's I understand why it become that way. Uh, but it's a pity because it's it's okay that the big, big uh, lake of, la- of milk is there. But it's a pity because to only do that with it. So I'm really happy in what's going on here in the Netherlands in the last five years. So something like six, seven years ago, I started as a milk sommelier. And the milk milk world in the Netherlands looks different nowadays. If you go now to the shop here in the Netherlands, you you can choose things. I want to refer especially to two ones. For me, it's a really nice start. If you go to uh, a big supermarket, there are now two new brands one called Mijn Melk. And Mijn Melk was the first one who did something really interesting. Mijn Melk is a, is a product that was created by a big firm called Lely. And they are into milk robots. And what's really about milk robots is that the cow can decide when, to wa- when she wants to be milked. But what's really interesting about it is that, you c- that the, the robot can... Uh, recognize the cow, so they know that it will be Aaltje 38. <laughs> and she only... Or Betsy. Or Betsy, or, Betsy. or maybe even uh, Weaver or something. <laughs> you know. Daisy. Daisy. So but the robots recognize the cow. The cow will recognize the cow and knows, and also testing how much lactose, protein, fat is in the milk. Wow. And also if the milk, if, if the cow gets uh, uh, medicines... Or, or there are some problems with uh, with uh, what they call uh, some disease. The, the 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 robots can recognize it, and then you can put your milk out and throw it away. This is here in the Netherlands. This is it is international. Wow. Lady is big. Wow, but it's nice. It, it's about robot in general. So we can have uh, other type of robots. You have many type of robots, not only Lady, but Lady is big one. Uh, so they. What you can do with that, if you know, recognize the cow and you can measure the lactose and fat and that sort of thing, then the idea you can also use to use the robot not to throw away the milk when it's bad, but also to put it away when it's good. Mm. And that's what they decide to do. So they create a new system around it to just take the milk out and put it in a bottle. Uh, and what they did is they have the line of four or five uh, cows can be milked and put it in a bottle. So that what they create the first main milk was that they just say, okay, there are family lines in the kettle, the aagjes and the antjes and that sort of thing. So they put all the aagjes just in one bottle and all the antjes also in one bottle. What are those? I don't get what you mean with the aagjes and the antjes. Uh, antjes is the, the name of the cow. So oh, the weavers okay. and the, okay. the bedjes and that sort of thing. So they the decide... The here, weavers Yeah, yeah. Here, so we have your bedje 1, bedje 2, bedje 3, bedje 4. So 1, 2, 3, 4. So they put all the bedjes just in one 
bottle. And they say, right. okay, this is the milk from bedje. And for all the bedjes, the bedjes family line. And this is the, the, the milk from all the, the aagjes family line. And so you said, you said the thing, and this is another, I guess, key difference between, like, say, milk and wine with the sommelier thing, is um, you, you said that milk is rarely ever treated as, like, this is the thing, that the finished thing you're going to drink. Like, yes, of course, people drink it for breakfast and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's going into cereal. It's going into yeah. a baking dish, something like that. There's no attention to it. Yeah, and wine, wine's not like that. Wine is like, it is the product. Yeah. And so you're saying that's part of the problem is that people treat it as yeah. not the finished product, that it's just going to go into yeah. something else. But, I mean, personally, milk is actually one of my favorite things to drink. And Dutch people always kind of think that's weird. They say, is it common in the U.S. to drink milk? But it actually is. I mean, we drink. We used to drink a glass of milk for breakfast every day. Um, you know, you'd have it just kind of as a snack or something like in yeah. the afternoon. But in the Netherlands, it was also really general. Yeah? It's really nice to know that in, in the Europe, we are the the tallest persons because we drink a lot of milk mm-hmm. so and we have also the we have less obesity problems here in the Netherlands because we drink a lot of milk but so it, how would people I mean how could a normal person like actually taste some milk that might be where they would be able to appreciate the differences in it like you can with wine how, yeah. you have to just find milk that hasn't gone yeah but that's to go back to the Lely story that's my milk but then we have Elka milk Elke milk is really intriguing because they do the same. They use their milk robot, not from Lely, but from another company. And they created a new system behind it. So what they now created is that the milk of the cow from just Aagje 38 is going into the bottle directly. So from milking to bottling is something like 12 minutes. So they're creating a pasteurization process and cooling process in just 12 minutes from milking to so what the lady did was just putting the family line in one bottle but what Elkemag does do is that they put the milk of that cow in one bottle so and oh okay so now you can go to the grocery store and you can know which cow you're getting yes ah. and what's also interesting because the robot also measured the lactose and the fat and that sort of thing so they're creating a system of crosses to say how much lactose fat or protein is in the milk right so if you go to the shop it's really nice we go to the shop and you buy elke milk you never know what you get so if you want to have aagje 38 aagje 38 it will be difficult because it changes all the time so what you do you you just pack your bottle of milk and you see at the crosses how much lactose protein and fat content is in there and if you take another one this is aagje 38 and it's batchje 15 And you see there it will be different. So it's really nice if you just take three bottles, they will be all different. Mm. So it's a really nice way to just learn as a consumer that milk is not always the same. Yeah, it's, And it's five years ago or seven years ago when I started as milk sommelier, that was my dream. Really? And it's now in the package. And for me, it's just the first step. So there's much more possible by using that robots because otherwise it's it's too cost expensive to to create some sort of system if you do it by hand so it's so uh, the technology innovation has kind of allowed it to become yeah. more mainstream that's that's fascinating that now you can actually go to the grocery store and see okay well this one has this lactose this one has this fat and you maybe start to learn i actually like high lactose milk or i like high fat milk yeah, or but whatever. you can also decide okay you know okay that the protein and fat is high in a sort of so it's something like four crosses both, then you know that's also good to foam for your coffee. Mm. And you don't, and if you take uh, with low uh, of high lactose and low fat and low protein content, it will not foam. So it will also 
do something else with you, not only drinking, but also using, or you think, oh, it's nice, there's a nice protein, high protein level, oh, maybe it's good for pancakes, ah. because it's better I for a thicker pancakes. so then so it's interesting so yeah. it's a good start to to experience as a consumer and uh so uh and you see other type of milks so you see now milk from the farm uh, at albert Heijn. there's a milk from the farm and it's not homogenized and in the beginning in especially if you go to the supermarket all milk is homogenized and homogenized means they just try to make it the same like all of that milk no that's that's standardization but homogenization is real about the fat so what they do with the fat they put into some little sof sif sif is the mm-hmm. correct word to make all the fat bubbles as small as possible and even ah. and because it's small it doesn't float anymore so you have no texture but if you're just leaving the fat content intact and also the, the sizes of the fat, so if small fat and, and, and bigger fat, and so it will float and then you have texture. And texture, every every chef can tell you that texture is real big part of your uh, flavor and, and tasting experience. That's, that's really interesting. I, I, I totally agree. Um, and so you, you said you started your you know milk sommelier journey six, seven years ago, something like that. And um, so for anybody, basically, look up uh, Bostochrote on, uh, on YouTube, and you'll see he has this great video um, where he went to the States. Uh, what was the name of that? Uh, the Clover Farms, right? Yeah, yeah, Sonoma. Sonoma country. So, you, yeah, you go to Sonoma County in California, um, also a big wine country, obviously, but then you, you go to this guy's dairy farm, you taste his milk, and you kind of, you guys talk about what all goes into it. And then there's the, the video from the South Korean commercial, which is super cool. Um, I think for anybody, you can watch that and appreciate it. But you it's go... Difficult to find on YouTube. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, it's, that's a difficult. Oh, I, well, I guess I found it from your social media is how yeah, yeah, I got yeah, it. Yeah, but yeah. but anyway, I'm sure if you do enough advanced Googling, you can find it. Of course. Um, but my point is you, you you have this kind of journey. And like you just said, you st- when you started, you wanted people to realize that milk was something that could be appreciated as a, a beverage that's unique. It has different characteristics, different texture, different flavor. And now over this journey, I mean, going to South Korea going to the U.S., doing all the tra- you know workshops and kind of seminar things you used to do here in the Netherlands before COVID and all that stuff kind of killed it all. Now you hear, you're here at this point in the journey and you see, like you're just talking about these processes where now you have, what, three milk companies that are in supermarkets that are kind of showing those advantages. So how does that feel now to be at this point and see how everything's changed? I'm really happy with it. And it's also good... Uh I'm a bit fed up with with being a milk sommelier, <laughs> uh, so I think my goal is 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 starting to be reached in a way. Uh, so I'm really comfortable with it, and it's uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it it it's really great to see that sort of things that I already told told seven years ago, and uh, yeah, and I see also uh, of course I'm into milk, so people just sometimes talk to me and say, oh, I just bought uh, that sort of thing. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's, that's great. And, but it's, for me, it's just the beginning. Or not, not for me, but it's just the beginning for milk. There we can do much, much more uh, uh, on differentiation. Well, it's about differentiation, not only about flavor, but in differentiation than we do now. But it's a really good start. Uh, and you see that, uh, that the companies survive because that was a really a big concern for me. Was Elke Milk and Mine Milk that's special enough for people to buy and pay an extra more. Mm. But 
it looks good, so that's great. So there is there is a market for differentiation. It's not only an idea, but there's also people who demand that sort of ideas as well. So that's good. For sure. Well, it's been a, a crazy journey for you, I think. But yeah, but it's also for me, it's the end. So I'm, it's, uh, uh, I just had a small assignment two weeks ago for um, Omroep Friesland. And uh, I have to do a tasting, but also we did a discussion with, or just sitting on a table to really relax one with some other people from Derry. And um, and the, the, the we did just did the milk tasting, but we just go really fast with it because I'm not really interested in the tasting anymore. You've tasted enough milk. <laughs> yeah, but it's also, it's not, not it's, it's nice to tell people something, but it doesn't bring me anything anymore. Yeah. So it's good. To, so I we need to have more milk sommelier so I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's good. Yeah, you, you want to be passionate about stuff while you're doing it. And I think um, hopefully there will be more milk sommeliers. There we are with three, as far as I know, in the world. All right, so up to three. There's a Scottish guy and there's a Danish guy, and they all do it in different way. Nice. So that's nice. All right. Well, hey, thanks a lot for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. It was good to get to chat after so long. It's always nice to chat with you. Nice to hear what you're doing with the farm. And um, one more time, what was the website people can go to for that? Uh, Hetmiddenland.nl. Awesome. Well, best of luck with that. And uh, thanks again for doing this. You're welcome. Appreciate it. All right. Bye, guys. (laughs) 